everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I am really excited about tonight's program. I have a special guest on. I have Don Preston on the program tonight. And Don Preston, he is a full preterist, and we're going to let him tell you what that is. And when it comes to preterism, I get accused of being a preterist a lot because there are many things that people say are in the future that I believe uh, has already been fulfilled. And so I get that label thrown at me a lot. Uh, preterism in my world is a very bad word. And it's one that when people are kind of losing an argument on something they do, they just start throwing that label out there. But I often hear people say things about preterists that I know aren't true about the position that I know, but then there's other things I'm just not real sure of. So on this program, we do not believe that we have the everything completely figured out. And so we are willing to ask questions and have conversations. And so on this program tonight, for those of you who agree with me, I am going to be interviewing Don Preston about full preterism and what he believes in the subject. I am not going to have a debate with him. I am not going to argue with him. I am going not going to be disrespectful to him. I'm going to hear what he has to say. And some of you might not like that because you think, you know, you might feel like it's total heresy. Well, then just don't watch the program. I, I sincerely want to know. And then after I've had a chance to hear what he has to say, I've had a chance to think about it a little bit. I will uh, pro probably do a video, uh, another podcast about my discussion with him where I will make every effort to uh, not misrepresent anything that he said. And even though me and him might end up disagreeing, um, we can at least, we will have been able to say we had an honest discussion. And I hope that even if he disagrees with my conclusions, that he will at least be able to say, I accurately represented his position and treated him fairly. And that's what I, uh, that, that is my goal today. And so, um, and again, if you're mad at me for even talking to him, just understand, I don't trust Baptists in what they say about other people and other people's positions. They misrepresent too much. And so you're, um, you're just going to have to deal with that. So anyway, uh, uh, so we are very excited though, to have our guest. So, uh, Preston, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, your ministry, and then, uh, explain to us the audience and you tell us what full preterism is. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Darren K. Preston. Uh, I am the president of Preterist Research Institute of Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, I've been married to my first wife for 54 years and it, she'll be my last wife too. <laughs> Uh, have two two wonderful kids, and um, I was raised as a fifth generation member of the Churches of Christ, uh, all millennial uh, in eschatology. I, I was perfectly comfortable with that until I graduated from seminary, and I was challenged to teach the Olivet Discourse by a ladies' Bible class, and that started my downhill uh, path down the road to perdition, as some people would would express it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I. As, as I studied the Olivet Discourse, I soon realized that the traditional view that I was raised on, I, I just couldn't find it, that it had any merit. It could not be sustained. Uh, that segued into a study of the book of Revelation. I was raised believing in the late date of the book of Revelation. In my study of the Olivet Discourse, I naturally saw the perfect correlation 
between the, what the discourse said and what Revelation says. And that led me to believe that Revelation was written prior to the fall of Jerusalem and that his focus was the end of the old covenant age that came with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so uh, that really was a catalyst in my life to begin studying. And, and I'll, I'll throw this in. Being raised in the Church of Christ, we weren't always encouraged to study scholarly material. I, I heard some of my preaching heroes actually disparage going to university, going to college, getting a higher education degree. Didn't matter, you know, that it would help. <laughs> but, you know, those all those nasty liberals out there. And so... Uh, when I went to seminary, that that was my very first taste of being introduced to scholarly literature. And after I got out, graduated, uh, a whole new world opened up to me as I began to read genuinely scholarly material. I'd throw out the I would throw out the bones of liberalism, skepticism, on the part of the scholars who say, "Well, yeah, Jesus obviously expected to come back in the first century. He didn't do it, so he's not the Son of God." But here's what the words mean anyway. And so that world that world of being opened up to scholarship was one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me in my life. And learning how to be discerning between false conclusions about proper linguistics, proper grammar, proper history, etc., cetera, uh, has led me to where I am today. And I'll say this, Tommy, I'll, I'll say this. I didn't know what a preterist was, literally had never heard the word until as I began to share some of my newfound convictions, which stood at odds with my upbringing, my tradition, I had some people, some of my preaching peers go, well, that's nothing but that preterist heresy. And I go, oh, what? It's what? what? What are you talking about? And then they begin to say, well, that's this and that's that. And all, all I knew was what I was seeing from the Bible. I was not getting what I was seeing out of the commentaries, except a snippet here and a snippet there. I would say, I would read somewhere that, well, this scholar held to that view all the way back in the 15th century. And I would go, oh, I got to find out who this is. For instance, Grotius. I was like, whoa, who in the world is this guy? And it turns out that Grotius was an incredible scholar whose, uh, whose maritime law formulations are still used in the world today, by the way. That's how brilliant he was. But he was also a tremendous theologian, and he was a 99.9% preterist. And so I was able to get a hold of a microfilm of his teachings and what have you. So it, it just kind of kept on progressing, progressing, progressing. And if you were to see a a picture of my desk, you would see what I mean when I say I became enamored with scholarship mm -hmm. and learning. To me, learning is the greatest thrill there is because in my estimation, the more I learn, the closer I am to the Lord. So that's just a snippet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when it comes to uh, all aspects of eschatology, you know, these aren't short discussions there's no. so many things that you know build on each other 
And so we're, we're probably not gonna be able to do this conversation justice. I mean, just in what your opening remarks there, I thought of like three different major subjects I would, you know, <laughs> that would be fascinating discussions. And we'll probably be able to touch on uh, some of these, you know, for example, I do think the subject of the dating of Revelation is an important subject that in reality, um, I had never even heard that it was written at any time other than in the 90s after the destruction of Jerusalem. But I've heard some very interesting arguments uh, for how how people date it before that. We might talk about some of that. And I do think that's significant. Um, what you mentioned, too, about it uh, basically showing the exit of the old covenant and the entrance of the new covenant. I have heard some very interesting teaching on that, that it's like, it's really tough for me to deny. And then that's where we get it. We, we could get into a whole discussion too, on the language of revelation, the, the hermeneutic that's used to come to that conclusion. Um, I've, I've not heard a lot of the teachings on that, but I think those would be interesting discussions. So I guess though, to kind of keep this focus, cause a lot of people too, that watch this, this is probably gonna be the first time they've you know, actually even heard from a full preterist. But, um, when it comes to full preterism, you know, in a nutshell, uh, what does that mean? And remember too, you're talking to somebody who is a futurist who comes from a dispensational background, even though I no longer accept dispensationalism, but I'm kind of from that world. And so, uh, what, you know, what do you, would, how would you define full preterism? Full preterism is the belief that all prophecy was fulfilled by the time of, not in the events of, but by the time of the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the old covenant age in AD 70. That includes prophecies of the coming of the Lord, the judgment, the resurrection. And believe you me, I understand what a shock it is to hear that kind of a statement, but all the way in Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, which I've written two books on, by the way, uh, I've written three books on the book of Daniel, but nonetheless, in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel was told 70 weeks are determined to seal vision and prophecy. Well, one of my books is seal up vision and prophecy. And in that book, I, I catalog, I chronicle, I document from, uh, from across the entire spectrum of scholarship, all-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, doesn't matter, scholarship that agrees that to seal vision and prophecy that the Hebrew of the text means to bring the prophetic office to a close through the fulfillment of all prophecy. 70 weeks were determined to do that. Well, when we come to the New Testament, by the way, the vision of Daniel 9 ends at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, verse 26 mm. and verse 27. So that tells us right there that all prophecy would be fulfilled. Interestingly enough, we come to Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 24, which are admitted by, as far as I know, everyone to be describing the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Here, Jesus is saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, let those in Judea flee or know that, know that her desolation is nigh, etc." And in verse 22, he says, these be the days of vengeance in which all things that are written must be fulfilled. Well, what is all things written? Technically, according to the Greek grammar there, it's um, everything that it would, would be written or had already been written. But that doesn't let us off the hook. As Kenneth Gentry says, 
the, the force of the Greek there is a reference to all things that are written in the Old Testament. Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Trouble of it is for Dr. Gentry's position, all things in the Old Testament included second coming, judgment, resurrection, new creation, new covenant, salvation, the kingdom, every eschatological tenet and every soteriological tenet is predicted in the Old Testament and simply reiterated in the new. There are no new eschatological prophecies in the New Testament, none. They're all based upon Old Testament prophecies. Paul said his doctrine of the resurrection from the law and the prophets. Peter said his doctrine of the restoration of all things, i.e. the new heaven and new earth from the Old Testament. John said everything that he was writing about in Revelation, Old Testament. And so when Jesus stands up in Luke 21, 22 and says, all things written will be fulfilled by the time of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, then what do we exclude since it's everything that had been written in the Old Testament? One objection is often given, and it said, well, what he meant by that was everything written concerning the fall of Jerusalem. I accept that. Trouble of it is, in the Old Testament, every eschatological tenet, every eschatological element, and I just wrote a book last year, published a book last year, these are the day when, days when all things will be must be fulfilled, I, and I document throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Tanakh, as we call it, every single eschatological doctrine is inextricably bound up with predictions of the end of the old covenant age of Israel. Not the end of time, not the end of the Christian age, which by the way is endless, but pardon me, at, at the time of the judgment on Jerusalem. And then we can go into that and we could, I can give you many, many examples of that if you want, but here we have this interconnectedness between coming of the Lord, judgment, resurrection, destruction of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jesus said, Luke chapter 21, verse 22, everything written in the Old Testament. And if you want to say everything written in the Old Testament concerning the fall of Jerusalem, I'm perfectly fine with that because it includes all of those eschatological elements. Okay. Yeah. So obviously this is, you know, when people hear this from the futurist world, it's mm -hmm. horrifying. Yes. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a shock to the system. And I, I know people are probably getting outraged as we speak. And so uh, now you mentioned Kenneth Gentry. I I've been hearing his name a lot. Is he, is he a partial preterist? Yes. Okay. And, yes. and so the thing is from people I've listened to on the partial preterist world, um, you know, obviously I agree with a lot of what they say about, you know, the fall of Jerusalem, how many of the prophecies were filled there. I think it's ridiculous. The people that are teaching that all that's going to happen again. Uh, I, I, I disagree with that. I used to subscribe to that, but I, I do think it seems like the arguments still showing a future, the future events, there are a lot of weak points in it that I think you guys, uh, point out that I think our side does need to strengthen, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this program too. It's like, we need to strengthen some of these things. And, um, honestly, some of, in some of the areas, I'm not fully satisfied uh, with the answers. And we'll probably talk about some of those here in a little bit, but the big thing to me, the, these are the important issues. And I guess why I get concerned when I hear about full preterism 
And just to make sure I am representing correctly, but does full preterism deny a future, literal, physical, visible return of Christ? And and if so, if that has already happened, you know, does that include First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen? And how was that fulfilled if that already happened? Okay, it's a great question, and it's perfectly natural, by the way. Mm. Let, let me give a, a real brief answer. In Matthew 16, 27, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father. Now, just like probably you and tons and tons of other people, I used to read that te text and gloss right over the statement, in the glory of the Father. And I was reading it one day, and I'm going, wait a minute, what does in the glory of the Father mean? Well, back to scholarship, I started grabbing commentaries off of my, off of my shelves. And there's a tremendously wide consensus that what in the glory of the Father means was in the same way, in the same manner, in the same glory as the Father had come. Okay, how had the Father come? And this was a shock to me, Tommy, from my amillennial background, all right? I, I was raised believing anytime you see the term day of the Lord, coming of the Lord, day of vengeance, etc., that's got to be the end of time. That's, that's at the end of the current Christian age. Well, unfortunately, that will not stand up to scrutiny for very long at all. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, was, it's a prediction of the destruction of e Egypt at the hands of Sargon, the king of Assyria, which happened, by the way. We know exactly how it happened. But Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1 says, Behold, Yahweh rides on a swift cloud and comes into Egypt. And I'm going, wait a minute. Yahweh rode a swift cloud into Egypt, and the Nile was... The Nile was dried up and all the fish died. The, fell, the, the birds fell out of the sky, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, not literally. I had to become acclimated to what's known as Hebraic apocalyptic language. Really big fancy term. But I, what that means is I had to become familiar with the fact that the Hebrews thought in a totally different way, radically different way from the way you and I as Western oriented people. You and I were raised in a Greek Occidental worldview. Hebrews were oriental. And there's a vast array of scholarly literature demonstrating, by the way, none of it was written by preterists, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but demonstrating that the Hebrews thought poetically. They thought in word pictures. And this, this can be demonstrated in a huge number of ways. Look, look at Isaiah chapter 24, for instance, as, as another example, it's part of what's known as the little apocalypse, Isaiah 24 to 27. Some people expand that to chapter 28, and I don't have a problem with that. But it, it's called the little apocalypse because Jesus and the New Testament writers quote from these chapters over and over and over again in their predictions of the day of the Lord the judgment, the coming of the Lord, etc. Well, in Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, the earth is clean dissolved. The earth is broken up. There are no, there are no men on it, etc., etc. And then it tells us why. 
they, whoever the they is, have broken the everlasting covenant. Verse 5. Well, let's talk about Israel violating Torah. I did not know the very first time I read that, still don't know of anybody today that believes that literal physical earth and creation is going to be destroyed because of Israel's violation of the law. Nobody teaches that. And so on the end of the chapter it in Isaiah 24, 19 and following, once again, we have the decreation language of heaven and earth being dissolved, earth being shattered, falling and never rising again, as the text says. And all again, this is against Israel because it's again in, in verses nine and following, it's against the people who dwell in the city in the midst of the land. Well, what people called themselves the people? What was the city that said in the midst of the land? Well, Ezekiel 5, 8 and following tells us, Jerusalem was set in the midst of the land. So passages like this, just over and over and over, use this highly metaphoric, highly exaggerated language. One more example, and this is one of my favorites. In, in Isaiah chapter 34, it, it's called the, the day of God's vengeance. It's a time in which the, the constellations of the heavens would dissolve and fall. The stars would fall from the sky. The earth would grow old and be folded up like a garment. The, the dust of the earth shall be turned to pitch. The streams shall be turned to pitch and shall burn day and night forever and forever. And then it says this, Tom, and this is one of the things that blew my mind. Um, the cormorant, the owl, the fox, and the jackal shall live there. Now, unless we're going to be willing to posit fireproof asbestos animals, we got a problem with taking it literally. Mm -hmm. Here you got wild animals living on the dust in which the dust is burning day and night forever and ever. But then verse 8 tells us specifically, this is a prediction of the destruction of Basra, which was the capital of the Edomite kingdom. When we come to Malachi chapter 1, it looks back on the destruction of Edom as a past event. And we know historically, Nebuchadnezzar in 583 BC destroyed the Edomites, capturing and destroying Basra. So, all of a sudden, if we take this, this language of the day of the Lord, and we see that Yahweh in the Old Testament had come many, many times before. And by the way, in the Old Testament, Yahweh came on the clouds. He came with a shout. He came with fire. He came with hailstorms. And heaven and earth was destroyed. Isaiah chapter 13. Heaven and earth were going to be destroyed in the destruction of Babylon. And it's not talking about the Babylon of Revelation. It's talking about the historical Babylon that existed in the ancient times. So this is the decreation language. So back to your point, back to your question, why do, we, why do I not believe in a literal physical coming of Christ? Well, because he said his coming with the angels and the judgment of all men was going to be in the glory of the Father. As the Father had come many times before, Jesus said his coming and judgment of all men was going to be just like that. 
So if the father had never come literally, visibly, and may I even use the term bodily, if the father had never come like that, then Jesus is saying his coming wasn't going to be like that. I think one of the greatest mistakes that I used to make that I think is so prevalent in the futurist world is the idea that Jesus was going to come back to be manifested and revealed as a man once again, physical. Uh, I, I've got to just saying a five foot five Jewish man. Okay. That is never, ever the purpose that is stated in the New Testament for the parousia of Christ. He was to be revealed as Lord, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the Alpha and the Omega, as the first and the last, Revelation chapter 1, 8 and 9. That means he was, as Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, in his day, that is in Christ's day, that is the day of the Lord, he will reveal who is the only true God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's him. He's not the father, but he's equal with the father in the Trinity, as we sometimes, sometimes call it. So the very purpose of Christ's coming was not to be revealed as a man riding on a cumulus cloud coming out of heaven. It was to act with the same sovereign authority that had been granted him by the father, John 5, 21 from henceforth, the father judges no one, but the father has committed all judgment to the son that he may judge as he has seen and that all men might honor him as they honor the father from henceforth, the father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the son. So the son can do nothing but what he sees the father do. How, what did this, how had the son seen the father judge over and over and over and over in the Old Testament by using this nation over here to judge this nation over here? And every single time God used this nation here in his sovereignty to judge this nation, it was said, Yahweh came on the clouds with the angels, heaven and earth were destroyed, etc., etc. So that, again, is a thumbnail sketch of why I believe that we have very good reason for saying, but no, Jesus was never to come back as a five foot five Jewish man. Okay. Yeah. And the one thing too, that I do agree is there, you can, I think it's important to go back and look at prophecies that we know have been fulfilled, that everybody would agree has been fulfilled, that were fulfilled in the first century. And often we do see if you compare the fulfillment with the original prophecy, the prophecy is often stated in a much more glorious way than like the physical manifestation of it. For example, I believe Isaiah 60, it's prophesying the coming of the wise men to see Jesus. And I mm -hmm. think that was fulfilled then. Uh, but when you read Isaiah 60, <laughs> you're, you're picturing something pretty glorious while what actually took place was actually visibly and physically very humble, but spiritually it was very glorious. What was taking place then too. I mean, you literally had, I believe descendants of the people that had held the Jews captive many years before coming and worshiping one of their Jewish citizens. And I, I believe that was the, uh, I believe, you know, and so I, I can see that 
uh, what you're saying on there, but at the same time too. So, um, when it comes to the resurrection and, um, you know, it, it would appear that in full preterism too, it denies a, a coming future physical resurrection. And to me, that is a very difficult thing to accept because while I understand apocalyptic language and all that, it, it does appear when we look at references to the resurrection, when you look at first Corinthians chapter 15, I don't, I can't see anything, but a physical resurrection. And uh, just like Christ was physically, literally physically rose from the dead. The apostle Paul seems to make the doctrine of his resurrection and our resurrection, all one doctrine. So is it true that um, you don't believe there's a coming physical resurrection where our, our bodies will come out of the graves, will physically be changed like futurists teach? Is, is that true? And how do you explain 1 Corinthians 15? Well, there's about 15 weeks of shows right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 is like one of the longest chapters too. You know, it's, it's a long oh, absolutely. chapter. Uh, it's Paul's magnum opus on the resurrection. There's no mm -hmm. question about it. In order to understand 1 Corinthians 15, we have to understand uh, point number one, what Paul was dealing with. And 99% of commentators, when they come to, re to 1 Corinthians 15, they say, well, Paul was dealing with people who were denying the resurrection. That's false. Paul was not de dealing with people who are denying the fact, the reality of resurrection, however we want to define it, okay? And we know that because Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. Now, he's using a, motive, uh, a method of logic, a logical argument uh, form. Uh, it's Aristotelian uh, argumentation. Modus tollens is what it's called, and it's if-then. Paul is taking things that the Corinthian scoffers will call them either did or did not believe and turning it against them. So when Paul says, if the dead and it's literally the dead ones are not raised, then Christ is not raised. Now, if they were denying resurrection, they should have gone. That's what we're saying, Paul. That's precisely what we're saying. That's not what was happening. Very few, if any, commentators believe that these people were denying the resurrection of Christ. They believed in the resurrection of Christ. So Paul, pardon me, Paul is saying, in effect, okay, guys, look, if you believe that Christ was raised, and they're going, yeah, of course we do. By the way, let me make it abundantly clear. I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, to move on. But when Paul said, if the dead ones are not raised, then Christ is not raised. They would. They Paul was expecting them to rejoin. Paul, we we know we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Then Paul says, "Guess what? Then you've got to believe in the resurrection of the dead ones." Then he says, "If the dead are not raised, then also the key word here is also those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's Christians." So Paul is saying. If, if you're going to deny resurrection life to the dead ones, then you're going to have to deny resurrection life to dead Christians, and they're, they're going to recoil in horror. Paul, no, 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 no. We're not saying the dead in Christ have perished. That's not what we believe. And then Paul is going to respond, then you can't deny resurrection to the dead ones. Now, who are the dead ones? 
they're the ones of whom and out from among them, Christ was the first fruit. That's the force of the Greek of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He became the first fruits of those who had already fallen asleep. That's old covenant saints. And I would suggest to you, it's old covenant Israel. I think Paul is dealing with one of the same problems that he dealt with in Romans, where the Gentiles were saying, God's, God has cut off Israel. They're done. Their story is over and done. Now, it's, now everything's for the Gentiles. And Paul said, no, 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 no. God hasn't cut them off already. He hadn't cut them off forever. If they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they too will be grafted in. Well, if they were cut off, what were they? They were dead covenantally dead. And Paul says, guess what? They can be grafted in again. They can be grafted into the root. Well, grafted in again, which means to be brought from that state of covenantal death to a state of covenantal life in Christ. And that's the key, in Christ. And so what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15 is those who are denying resurrection life to a certain group of people those who had died before Christ, of whom Christ was the first fruit. And let me make just one real, real, real quick aside here. And that is that Christ's physical resurrection, and it says he's the first fruit. He's the first. Well, a couple of different points on that. That's a direct allusion to the Jewish feast day of Sukkot, feast of harvest. And you don't have the first fruit at the end of one age and the harvest at the end of another age. That doesn't work. So whichever age and whichever age Christ was raised as the first fruit, that is the age in which the harvest was to take place at the end of that age. Well, guess what? Christ was Christ came under the law. He lived under the law. He died under the law. He was raised under the while the law was still in effect. And he was he was in the last days of that age. So I would just simply suggest to you that when Paul says Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, that demands that the resurrection had already begun. He's the first fruit, and that means that the harvest at the end of the age had to be at the end of the same age in which Jesus was the first fruit of that resurrection, and that was the old covenant age, not the end of the Christian age. Okay. Okay. And so, there's a whole lot more, tons and tons yeah, more. I mean, yeah, obviously, the, yeah, there's a lot to that, and and so I'm hearing what you're saying, and um, I understand, too, the idea of you know, different cultures and kind of how they spoke the kind of the symbolic, the apocalyptic language. But then when Paul's, you know, writing to, you know, Greeks, you know, Greek Christians, wouldn't that have been kind of a foreign concept to him? Shouldn't there have been some place where he like maybe laid out all of these things in, in the way that you're explaining? Because again, I, I, I read it. I've just, I've always taken it as just as very literal as like literally, uh, you know, like, especially at the end, we should not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It appears that it is a, 
dead body we put in the ground being raised a new and glorified physical body. So I so I guess is there is there any way from the scriptures that you can show um I guess why Paul would have spoken in that same way or how they would have even known that? Yeah, and that's a great point. Uh, I will simply respond by citing a scholar who is not a preterist again. Uh, his name is Paul Manier, uh, when he and, and a little little book is about that thick on New Testament apocalyptic. And Paul Manier, addressing the language of Second Peter three, uh, and of course that would naturally apply to Paul's audiences that were in the Greek speaking areas as well. Let's remember that Paul went. Where first? He went directly to the synagogue. Most synagogues in the very first century were, com were comprised, number one, of faithful Jews, number two, of proselytes, number three, of what was known as Sibomai. Now, the Sibomai were Greek-speaking, or they were Greeks who loved the God of Israel, who worshipped the God of Israel, served the God of Israel, but who had never been circumcised. You had very few, quote, pagan <clears throat> uh attendees. You had some. I'm not saying that there weren't. But Paul Manier says, when the New Testament writers use this language of the day of the Lord, the earth burning, elements burning, etc., etc., they never give an explanation for it. Well, why is that? Well, because they're writing to people that they expect to understand the language. I think we don't give the ancient world enough credit for, for how pervasive in the synagogues and thus in, in all of these levels of attendees, how pervasive knowledge and understanding of Hebraic thought would have been uh, among those who actually understood the Hebraic scriptures. Uh, and you're right, they don't ever lay it out. They expect their audiences to understand. I was listening to a speaker to just today and he was commenting on Matthew. Well, everyone basically agrees, okay, Matthew was a good faithful Jew. He's writing to good faithful Jews, or at least people who'd understand Hebraic thought, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of language does he use? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, the stars of heaven uh, shall not give their light, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Well, here's Matthew writing to Jews using that language. But here's Luke, guess what? Luke chapter 21, 25 and following, using almost the exact verbatim language. Well, if Matthew is using that in a typically Hebraic, non-literal manner, then where would we shift our hermeneutic in Luke chapter 21 and say, well, yeah, Matthew's speaking metaphorically, but Luke's speaking literally. No, they're recording the same identical discourse. And so, once again, I think that we have to understand that there was, in, in fact, and indeed, more of an understanding of Hebraic thought, Hebraic literature, that than we normally would give credit for. Now, let me return to, a, to your question there about what would we read? Okay, this sounds like it's a dead body. And First Corinthians 15, well, it is a dead body. It's the body of the dead ones. Paul uses the singular body with what body do they come? 
Now, I understand that in the Greek, it's not absolutely totally necessary that the singular there be used in a corporate sense, but it can be being used in a corporate sense. But let me make this observation from another very, very noted scholar. His name is Brant Petrie. Are you familiar with him at all? Mm -mm. Uh, if you can get a copy of his book, Tommy, let me just recommend to you, you spend what's necessary. And it's not $9.95, by the way. <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> uh, Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E. He wrote a book entitled Jesus, the Tribulation, and the End of the Exile. Uh, when I read the book, and I've read it probably four or five times, but when I read the book, as I'm reading along, I'm going, this dude's got to be a full preterist. He's a Catholic scholar. He's written several books, by the way. Uh, let me see here. I happen to have one of them laying here on my desk. Uh, okay. This has some absolutely incredible insights into the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Now, He's a Catholic. He believes in transubstantiation. I don't accept that by any stretch of the imagination. But his insights into the typology of Passover uh, being carried over into, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper blows your mind. But, and you have to excuse me, I get excited and I go down these side paths. But Brat, Brat Petri, in this book, Jesus, Tribulation, and the, and the End of Exile, he makes an absolutely incredible statement. He says, every Old Testament prophecy of resurrection was originally a, a prophecy of the national corporate resurrection of Israel out of exile. Now, let that soak in for a moment. And by the way, I agree with him 100%, not because he said it, but because having examined every one of the Old Testament uh, prophecies of resurrection, I mean, you got Isaiah 25, you got Isaiah 26, you got Isaiah 27, you got Hosea 13, you got Ezekiel 37, you got Daniel chapter 12. Every one of them are dealing with a national resurrection. Another great scholar, uh, the resurrection and the, and the Restoration of Israel by John Levinson. Highly, highly decorated scholar, highly recognized scholar. He says, originally, all of these Old Testament prophecies of the resurrection were of national resurrection of Israel, back to fellowship with God, because these Old Testament writers viewed alienation from God being kicked out of the land they viewed that as death, being restored to the land and to the city, to the temple, the cultus, was resurrection. Well, think of the implications of that for, for, for 1 Corinthians 15. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 was anticipating the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8, Hosea 13 and 14, and Daniel chapter 12. Well, if it's true, let me present a hypothetical syllogism here. If it's true that all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the resurrection were prophecies of the resurrection of, of Israel out of sin, death, exile, separation from God, alienation from God, being restored to the presence of God, 
And if it's the case that the New Testament doctrines of the resurrection anticipated the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, then it must be true that all the New Testament prophecies concerning the resurrection were anticipating the fulfillment, or excuse me, the restoration of Israel and thus mankind back to fellowship with God in the Messiah, not in the physical land, but into dwelling in Christ. That's where fellowship is. That's where fellowship is restored between man and God. It's not restored outside of Christ. All, all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Ephesians 1 verse 3. So when we see that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is drawing from two Old Testament prophecies of national restoration, not geopolitical, not physical, but national spiritual resurrection back to the presence of God, that's what Paul was anticipating. Then where do we change that in 1 Corinthians 15 to Paul being focused on the raising of individual physical bodies out of the dirt? That's changing it from, quote, corporate to individual. Now, mind you, individuals participate in the corporate and they comprise the corporate. But when the focus is on corporate, you can't break it apart and say, oh, well, that has nothing to, to do with corporate. No, that's what it's all about. And individuals participating in the blessings of that, that corporate resurrection. And that's why, pardon me, I think that's why Paul could say Christ is, is the head of the body, the church, and he is the, the church, which is his body, and he is the savior of the body, corporate. Well, if I'm in the body of Christ, and Christ is the Savior of the body, plural, then I'm resurrected by being in fellowship with Christ. That's where I find my eternal life, in, in Christ. Okay. See, yeah, there's, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, yeah, the problem with this, is like for each of these things, I've got like five other follow-up questions, you know. Is that all? I would expect <laughs> 15 or 20. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah it, it, it definitely. But I, I think, though, it is helping me get a better understanding of where you're coming from because I've, I've not heard that explanation before. And, um, you know, so, but it, again, you know, the, and these things are making sense. Um, I, I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. And so, um and I guess this is somewhat uh, related to, but um, so like in the millennium, okay. What most um, I, I did hear, uh, I listened to one of your debates on standing for truth. And I had always wondered about this. Uh, you'll probably need to explain it a little bit to the audience about how you believe that the prophecies of the millennium that we would consider a, a literal thousand year were fulfilled within a 40 year Correct. period. Um, and so obviously we go to revelation 20 where we see a thousand years. Um, but if I may throw something extra kind of in there too, um, and I'm sure you've probably read more of this than I have, but Eusebius, for example, um, he seemed like he was very hostile towards the teaching of a future physical kingdom with Christ ruling on earth. And yes. so, which tells me, you know, tells me one that not everybody believed that back then, as far as like a future, but it also too, it appeared that some people did because he was very hostile against that 
teaching. Um, so um, I don't know if you have any um, any good like. Do you have any good sources for what people believed in the earliest centuries on this? You know, after the <laughs> scriptures were written, and then two, um, you know, tell everybody a little bit about what you believe about the millennium. Well, I believe that just what uh, I uh, expressed in my debate uh, there that you're referring to with Anthony Aquino, probably the one that you watch. Uh, uh, Anthony Aquino insists that a thousand has to refer to at least a thousand. It can never be less. Well, I believe that's a failure to understand Hebraic thought in the first place. And there's no book except possibly Hebrews that is more Hebraic in its thought than the book of Revelation. Uh, I mean, after all, it, it either cites, quotes, echoes, or somehow or other alludes to well over 400 Old Testament prophecies. You don't get more Hebraic than that. Well, uh, there are any number of scholarly works that have been written to demonstrate how the Hebrews like to use large numbers in a couple of different ways. They love to use tremendously large numbers to speak of the um, the numbers of their enemies, for instance. Even in the book of Judges and the book of Chronicles and Kings, the enemies of Israel were described as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the sky without number. And yet what happened? Well, the Israelites whipped them with just a few men. They, they weren't trying to say that there were literally three or four million, 10 million, et cetera, et cetera. They were simply saying Israel was vastly outnumbered. When in reality, that huge number, like the stars of the sky, a whole lot less than that. But they, they were using this to magnify the, the strength of the enemy to magnify the victory of Israel over them. And likewise, they would very often give few in number to magnify how great the victory would be as opposed to the large number. Okay, numbers were used to magnify the greatness of a victory. For instance, uh, when, when you when you look at the city of Ai uh, in Joshua chapter six, the numbers there don't don't really stack up. Uh, and I've forgotten the exact numbers that are used uh, at the present moment, but they don't stack up from a literalistic perspective. And just very very quickly, a really good example of it is when David killed. Goliath. They come back into the city. The women are dancing and singing praises. Uh, here's Saul watching the whole proceedings. And the women are saying, David has slain his 10,000. Saul has slain his thousands. Well, guess what? According to the biblical record at the time, David has slain one. One person, and that's Goliath. Saul had not killed even a thousand up to that point, maybe, maybe, maybe if you want to, if, if we had some way to extrapolate it out and account, but the point of it is, what are they doing? David has slain his 10,000s, plural. Oh, it's just to magnify how great of a victory it was over Goliath and the Philistines. That is a common tactic or, or practice, journalistic practice in Hebraic thought. And when we look at the thousand, okay, we can even go to the book of Revelation and we see that we've got a 200 million man army all on horses. Well, guess what? 
I did some research on this. Even today, right now, 2,000 years later, there are only an estimated of 50 to 50 to 60,000 horses, or million, excuse me, in the entirety of the world. How much longer would the earth have to last and live and exist for there to be 200 million, literally? It's, it's a totally unrealistic number. It means it's vastly less than that. Is it a lot? Sure it is. Nobody's denying that. But it's sure not even close to 200 million. A second point that I would point out is several points, but I'll try to keep this brief. Point number one, many ancient rabbis and, and Gregory Beale's commentary on the book of Revelation, Gregory Beale points out the, that the ancient rabbis were literally all over the map when they talked about the, what we would call the millennium. Some of them thought it would be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Guess what? Some of them thought it would last for three years. Some of them thought it would last for seven. Several of them thought the millennium was supposed to last for 40 years because they believed that the millennium was supposed to be what they referred to, what Isaiah foretold in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 43, the second exodus. The time in which God, just as in the first exodus, God brought Israel through the wilderness, defeated their enemies, brought them into the promised land. The time of the millennium was the time of the waiting for God, for Christ to put down his enemies until he came to put down the last enemy, which will be death, to vindicate the martyrs and by, by the destruction of Satan, Revelation chapter 20, 10 and following. So many of them saw the millennium as, as a symbol for the 40-year second exodus. Well, to me, that makes perfect sense because Jesus spoke very eloquently and commonly about the second exodus. Luke chapter 9, Jesus spoke to his disciples about his, unfortunately, some transla translations simply render it as his departure, but it's literally exodus, his exodus. He's setting himself up as the second exodus in the Lord's Supper. I mentioned this book here, uh, and Brent Petrie does a great job of demonstrating. Well, what happened on the night of the Passover? Well, they had the lamb that initiated the, the exodus. Jesus sets himself forth. This is my blood, which is shed for you, for many, for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 26 and following. Here's Jesus talking about the initiation, the initiation of the second exodus through his death, of course, burial and resurrection, all throughout the New Testament. And this is where we have to really be attuned to it, because if we're not attuned to Exodus language, we just gloss right over it. But Exodus language is used in Colossians, used in Ephesians, used in Revelation, Revelation 15 especially. This Exodus language is used so commonly. And again, if we are attuned to it, then we get the idea, just like Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, he talks about that generation of the past, the 40 years coming out of the wilderness. They did not enter in because of unbelief. And so the writer says, beware lest you also do not enter in through unbelief. I was they're in the second exit. Yeah, yeah. 
they were in that second Exodus. I, I was I going to specifically ask you about that passage in Hebrews because um, when, I, yeah, when I listened to your debate with Anthony Aquino, I had never heard the 40-year thing before. I, I, right. I had never heard that. And I, I heard what you were saying about 1,000, and my mind immediately went to Deuteronomy 7, 9, where it says, Know therefore the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Well, mm -hmm. if we take that literal, that ruins everyone's timelines about the age of the earth. <laughs> and you know, it, that, that messes up everything. And yeah. um, we see the same thing too in uh, Psalm 105, 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And so it does appear, I, I think you can make, I think you make a good argument that Kind of like sometimes how we will refer to like a gazillion dollars, which we're just like, it's just like this unlimited. It seems like a thousand is as far up as they would often go in their, in their terminology, even though there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. or thousand thousand, mm -hmm. which would be millions. But like that thousand word, it was like they sometimes used it like an uh, indefinite number. So it's an idiom. Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I think, that, you know, and let me just go ahead and make some people mad. But when it comes to the thousand year millennium, there's not, uh, that's not as strong of a teaching as I would like it to be. You know, I, I was always told amillennialism's heresy, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but at the same time too, it's like, you know, I, I, I just keep asking my question, you know, and I don't want to get into the next video I want to make, but one of the challenges I want to put out there to our side is I think we need to do a job, better job of explaining why we need the millennium. You know, I, I think it's important that we show that why prophecy needs the millennium. I've got some thoughts on that, but um, again, some things aren't may as strong I, as may I, I like. May I throw a few thoughts in there? Sure. And I developed this. I wrote a book on Revelation. It's entitled, Who is this Babylon? Uh, and I developed this motif, this thought in that book. In Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been beheaded for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not avenge us on those who are on the earth? They were given white robes and told to rest for a little while. Oligon, uh, chronon, uh, or oligon, a small time. So here they are. What are they waiting on? Vindication. Judgment on their persecutors, okay? Revelation chapter 12, John said he saw this magnificent woman crowned with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here is Satan, the beast, who attempts to kill her child. He's cast out from heaven. There's a war in heaven. Michael the angel cast him out of heaven. And he's cast down to earth. And he has great wrath, and he pursues the seed of the woman, or, or the son, excuse me, seed of the woman truly and seed of the of the son as well and he has great wrath because he knows now remember he's trying to persecute he's persecuting he has great wrath wrath because he knows that he has only a little while once again only gone greek word little short time short period of time revelation chapter 20 what does john see John sees, the, sees those who had been beheaded because they would not take the mark of the beast. And they were seated on thrones and they rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Well, why a thousand years? 
because they, just like the saints in Revelation 6, just like in Revelation chapter 12, they're waiting for something to happen. Now let's go back to chapter 6. They're told to rest for a little while until their fellow brethren and saints who should be slain as they were should be filled up. Revelation chapter 12, Satan is continuing his persecutorial ways to do what? Develop the measure of his sin. Revelation chapter 20, why are these saints there on thrones ruling and reigning for a thousand years? To wait for the number of their brethren who should be slain as they were to be fulfilled. In other words, for the number, the eschatological number of the martyrs to be filled up. So what happens at the end of that little while of Revelation 6, at the end of the little while of Revelation chapter 12, at the end of the, quote, thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, in Revelation 6, it's the great day of God's wrath. And that, that great day of God's wrath is the day in which men would run to the mountains, hide in the caves, and cry to the rocks, fall on us. Tommy, I think you'd agree with me that if the day of the Lord is an earth-burning, time-ending event that's over in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, men wouldn't have time to run to the hills and hide in the caves. This gets back to the idea of the day of the Lord being a historical event that doesn't bring history to an end. It brings that nation's history to an end because they're destroyed. Point of fact is, the answer to the martyr's prayer in Revelation chapter 6 is the day of the Lord. Revelation chapter 12, what does Satan know is coming at the end of the little while that he's got to persecute the saints? Oh, his destruction. Revelation chapter 20, the saints rule and reign for a thousand years. What happens at the end of the thousand years? Uh, Satan is loosed for a little while, and he goes out to make war with the saints. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. What do you have? Revelation 20, 10 and following, the great white throne judgment. And at that time of the great white throne judgment, what happens? Satan and his angels are destroyed. That's fulfilling Revelation 12. That's fulfilling Revelation chapter 6. So here's the question. If it's true that Revelation 6, Revelation 12, and Revelation 20 are about the vindication of the martyrs who were crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not avenge us? What was it that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 when he said that all of the blood of all of the righteous from Abel, righteous Abel, and Zacharias son of Barakas would be avenged in that generation, but it would only be after, after he sent his apostles and prophets to Israel. Some of them, Jesus said, you will crucify, scourge, chase from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood of all the righteous shed upon the earth. So here is the book of Revelation, which is depicting the filling up of that measure of sin. And it's being done by the city Babylon, which is defined for us as, quote, where the Lord was crucified, unquote. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. When Revelation was written, Israel's sin, Jerusalem's sin, of filling up the measure of sin 
by killing Jesus' apostles and prophets. Revelation 18, 20, and 24. Rejoice, you apostles and prophets of the Lord, for he, that's Yahweh, has avenged you on her. Her who? Babylon. Only one city killed the prophets of God. Jesus said it's not possible that a, a prophet perish out of, out of Jerusalem. He wasn't even saying that in some woodenly literalistic means, but he was saying that Jerusalem was the source of persecution against his prophets and saints. Okay. Now, I, this is, I mean, obviously this is, this is heavy stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's all deep. It's all, it's all really deep. And, uh, and, you know, and for those watching in my audience too, again, I, I always have to tell people this, but you know, we're, we're let's, let's be civil. And if your only response is to lash out, I'm going to assume it's because a lot of it is just kind of going over your head because there, this is, it's all, it is, it's all deep stuff, but I will admit in the futurist world, I do think there's a lot of things we've overly simplified. And that's why there's always so many holes in the arguments and so many disagreements and stuff. And, um, you know, and people like myself that are post-trib, pre-wrath, we're, we're very closely related to the dispensational pre-trib world. And I think that's one of the worst eschatologies there is out there <laughs> in, in many ways. Um, but at the same time, I get along with them pretty good because they've still got Jesus coming back in the future, you know, like we've always <laughs> pictured in rapture. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, everyone needs to just understand too, that I, I know for a fact, there's way more that you could have said about each of these points and we just don't have time to be here for hours. Um, so I was really, I mainly, you know, we accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish is just kind of the overview. I do think I have a better understanding of your positions and conclusions. I obviously there's still much I don't know about how you've come to all those conclusions. And so, cause I do, I, I definitely want to fully or uh, completely accurately represent this. And so we're be, for time's sake, we're going to skip over the second section. I, I was wanting to spend some time talking about things that I have learned from preterists. I'll probably do that on my follow-up video um, where I think that you guys have some good teaching that has strengthened my beliefs in certain areas and corrected some things. Uh, so I'll probably talk about that later, but, I, I, I do want to do this real quick, if we can maybe briefly do this. And if we can't briefly do this, just tell me it can't be if briefly you, done. If you would like to have me back on another occasion, if you don't mm -hmm. catch too much heat and don't want to do it, that's fine. But if you would like to have me back so that we could go a little bit deeper, at least, yeah. on some of these issues, I'd be happy to do that. Well, I tell you what, what I think we should do is um, I, I have an episode um, – I've got an episode I've already recorded I'm going to release um, before this where I talk about why I'm still a futurist. Um, and then, uh, and I and I say all those things in there before, even though I haven't released it yet, you know, before we had this discussion. Um, I wasn't positive where this discussion was going to go in some areas. And so I'm, I'll, I'm going to do a follow-up one, uh, basically showing my beliefs and uh, where I think you're right, maybe where I, I still think you're wrong. And then that will probably show you what you need to maybe get across to me a little bit better. Okay. And so uh, maybe after we do that, after that one's released, if you'd like, we could have you come back on and we could talk a little bit more and, and kind of go into some No problem. Details. No problem. So, um, 
And then that way too, that way you can hold my feet to the fire if I'm not fair. Because <laughs> you know, I, the last thing I I I don't want to have guests on, let them talk, and then I just get up and I just use the stuff to just cream them and be unfair. I just I don't think there's any profit in that whatsoever. And so um, if I know I'm going to be having another discussion with you, it'll make it less likely for me to do that in case I <laughs> in case I get frustrated not being able to answer something and then I just do the classic lash out call you a bunch of names and misrepresent, which is what most people do. So um, if you can briefly maybe answer these, let's do it. If not, then don't worry about it. And, and the reason I'm bringing up these particular things is because I feel like in the futurist world, the, the explanations people have are not very satisfying to me. Even my position, and I have positions in all these things, they're not as strong as I would like them to be. It's not like my teaching on salvation that I feel like I got all the proof I could ever need. <laughs> I've got a position on these things, but it's like, I, I, I'd like to see if some, if, if maybe you guys have a better one. And so the 144,000, what, what do you, what do you believe that's all about? I believe they were the righteous remnant of old covenant Israel. Okay. <clears throat> the, the remnant doctrine, I mean, saturates the Bible mm -hmm. and, and that leads into obviously a discussion Romans chapter 11, all Israel right. shall be saved, but that's all the righteous remnant. It's not all Israel. Were they, were they, uh, literally male virgins and 12,000 from each tribe? I believe that 12,000 from each tribe is itself a symbolic number. Mm -hmm. Uh, 144,000 is a multiplication of, of perfect numbers, 12, 12, 12, 12, whatever. Uh, and so, it's highly symbolic language, but they are representatives out of true Old Covenant Israel, Israel after the flesh. God made his promises to Old Covenant Israel. Those promises were irrevocable, Romans chapter 11, verse 28. And so God was going to be faithful to all of his promises to Israel, and he was. Those ultimate promises were not physical. The initial promises were physical, the land, the city, the temple, the priesthood, etc. The ultimate promises, <clears throat> pardon me, were spiritual, fulfilled in Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham. The promises were made, Galatians chapter 3, 16 to 18, that he would bless the world through Abraham's seed. And he does not say to seed as plural, but to the seed singular, which is Christ. So it in the first place, it's a misnomer to say, as many people do, well, God promised to, to bless the, the world through the nation of Israel. That's not what it says. He was going to bless the world through the single seed, and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah, 100% with you. So oh, so the 144,000, they were Old Testament saints, not yes. people who got saved after the resurrection. Okay, okay. All right. So, um, Yeah, and notice, notice that, by the way, in addition to the 144,000, John says, I saw a great multitude that no man could number out of every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe. So you, you have being depicted here uh, the, the nation of Israel as it was, but you also have the nations coming in to bring Israel's salvation to its completion, to its consummation. And to use Paul's terminology in Ephesians chapter 2, to create one new man. This is the new creation. It's the body of Christ. Okay. Uh, yeah. And um, that seems to go along with, um, you know, I'm, 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 you said this first time I've heard this, so I'm thinking out loud. 
But in Hebrews 9, where it's talking about the one-time sacrifice, how you know it took care of all those of the past. And so they could be representative of the 144,000. Yeah. But then also them that look for them, it takes care of all the people in the future. So that, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and so uh, in Revelation 9, the creatures of Revelation 9, the locusts, literal or figurative? <laughs> Very figurative. <laughs> yeah, I see that. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Uh, the locusts had stings in their tail and all this kind of stuff like that. Uh, when you think about the siege of Jerusalem, from 66 to 70 AD, uh, the Romans had their siege machine, machines uh, uh, that shot the ballistae. Uh, Josephus says, by the way, uh, here's Revelation depicting these stones that are being cast that are 100 pounds, right? Well, guess how large the stones were that the Roman catapult machines threw? They were 100 pounds. Or they reached that size. They weren't always that big. But the point of it is, there, there's a really, really cool correspondence here between the Roman siege, uh, siege engines and this highly metaphoric language of Revelation uh, chapter 9. Okay. So then, Mark of the Beast, 666. I have traditionally taken that as Nero. When you look at Nero's name in the Hebrew, and remember how Hebraic the book of Revelation is, and, it, and there's a couple of really fascinating things about this, but when you look at uh, Nero's name in, in the Hebrew, <clears throat> in Gematria, as everyone knows, we're dealing with letters representing numbers, then guess what? You get 666. Well, in a in an archaeological find, uh, it's called the Oxyrhynchus document, the reading of Revelation there is the number is the number of a man six one six. Well, guess what? When you redo Nero's name, I think it's in the Greek. You get six one six. Now somebody says, "Well, that may just be coincidence." It sure is a strange coincidence. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Yeah, I've yeah I, I've heard that theory before, and it's definitely. Definitely interesting. I, I heard uh, one pastor say that um, John wrote it out that way to kind of get it past the censors, you could say, <laughs> you know, because if he's writing about Nero and he names him like that, you know, it could have caused problems when he's trying to get these letters to the seven churches. And so that's why he stated it that way. So they would have known what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. But that, yeah, well, when you when you come to Revelation chapter 17, and you have the listing of the kings, you have five are fallen and one is. Well, when you start with Julius Caesar, which is the proper place to start, by the way, five are fallen, one is. That's Nero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've looked into that. That's interesting. So I guess the final question I want to ask you, and this has, this has been fascinating, but the, the futurists often declare preterism heresy based on 2 Timothy 2.17, 18, where it talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus concerning the truth of errors, saying the resurrection is past, overthrow the faith of some. 1 Corinthians 15, you got people denying a little resurrection is how we would uh, declare it. And basically, if you know the dead don't rise, Christ isn't risen. So in the futurist world, we call you preter, you know, call you all heretics based on that. So if we're right, is it fair to still call you a heretic? In it? But if you're right, should you be calling us heretics? <laughs> 
that's a multi-level type of, mm -hmm. of question, but it's a good, fair question. Okay, I, I understand that. If the resurrection is still future, then obviously for me to say that it's past obviously would have severe uh, spiritual consequences. I, I would be the first to admit that. Let me ask a question, though. If the resurrection is, in fact, the raising of dead corpses of every human being who's ever lived and died and decomposed, gone into the dust, gone into the sea, etc., uh, if that's what resurrection is at the end of time, at the coming of Jesus out of heaven, earth burns up, however you want to depict that, the constellations are, are, are destroyed, how could anybody convince anybody it already happened? Yeah. That's a real problem for me, just like Peter, or excuse me, Paul said in Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, brethren, we write unto you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we beseech you by His coming, parousia, and our gathering together to Him. Greek uses the Greek word episunagogi, which is a highly, highly eschatological word, that you be not soon shaken by letter, as if from us or an epistle saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, the good old King James says, don't let anybody convince you that the day of the Lord is at hand. That's not a good translation. The translation is from the Greek word, and it's taken, and it's in the perfect tense. It's only used about eight times in the New Testament, if memory serves me correctly. And in the perfect tense, it is always rendered as present or already. So, and by the way, the vast, vast majority of translations render it, now render it, don't let anybody convince you that, they, that the day of the Lord has already come. Mm -hmm. So again, it raises that critical question. If the day of the Lord is an earth-burning time-ending event, then how could anybody, how could I convince you if I came to you, Tommy, and said, hey, Tommy, the day of the Lord happened yesterday. And you're going, yeah, really? Right, mm -hmm. Preston, where's the, where's the white, straight jacket mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? same thing with the resurrection if i come to you and say tommy resurrection of the dead happened yesterday and you'd be going there's the graveyard preston mm -hmm. it's still full i think there's a very very valid question and i think it's interesting that ff F. bruce commenting on second thessalonians chapter two said it's impossible to believe that the Thessalonians believed that the events of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 had already occurred. Well, I agree with that. If the events of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 were to be taken in a woodenly literalistic manner of Jesus coming out of heaven, again, as a five foot five Jewish man, riding a literal cloud, bringing physically dead people with him, and raising physically dead people. Yeah, I would agree. Nobody could convince anybody it already happened. Hmm. How could therefore, and I've written a book on this, I've written about 35 books and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to push books. I'm just simply saying if somebody wants resources to study, I bought, wrote a little book entitled, How Is This Possible? Well, consider that if you, if you have the old covenant concept of the day of the Lord in which a judgment was brought against a nation, a historical judgment. And that historical judgment was brought by Yahweh and used this nation against this nation, etc. 
And if some tremendous event had happened in judgment of Jerusalem when Paul was writing, perhaps, just perhaps, you might be able to say, the day of the Lord's already come. Well, as a matter of fact, we got at least two events in Jerusalem from 39 to approximately 42. I'll, I'll name just one for time's sake. On one of the feast days, on one of the great feast days, Jerusalem was absolutely full of pilgrims and worshipers and what have you. A Roman soldier lifted his garment and mooned the crowd. Well, that didn't go over too well. <laughs> that was just, you know, considered the epitome of an insult. So a riot ensued <clears throat> in which, you know, the Romans got involved. They started killing people. 30,000 people were killed in Jerusalem in one day. Hmm. Well, okay. Imagine then if you've been taught that the day of the Lord is a judgment on Jerusalem. 30,000 people just got killed in Jerusalem last year. Maybe the day of the Lord has come. Hmm. Earth didn't burn up. You know, earth didn't burn up. God didn't come out of heaven. There was no literal shout of an archangel, but God did judge Jerusalem. Okay. So I guess just, uh, I, I, Everything we talk about, I think about a bunch of other stuff. But <laughs> I, I will end with this. I, okay. I, I will end with this. So, it, you know, if that's the case, if eschatology has been fulfilled, so is the world going to go on like it is? Christianity is going to go on like it is forever? You know, do we have anything to look forward to? Are we just looking forward to going to heaven after we die? I mean, is is there anything to look forward to? Well, first of all, I would ask the question, what's wrong with dying and going to heaven? <laughs> no. And I'm not <coughs> pardon me, not trying to be facetious at all. Mm -hmm. But what do we have to look forward to? Well, in Ephesians chapter three, verse seven, Paul said, talking about the future, anticipating the end of the age. Number one, he affirmed in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, unto unto him that is God, <clears throat> be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, age without end. Now, G.K. Beale, he's an all-millennialist. I certainly don't agree with an awful lot of what he says, but he's recognized as one of the greatest Greek scholars in the world today. But G.K. Beale says that the Greek term that is used there, aeonion to, to aeonion, is the strongest Greek expression for endlessness. Okay, so what is Paul affirming there? He is affirming that the current age that broke in into the old age to bring the old age to its ultimate end <clears throat> is an age without end. Okay. So here's Paul affirming that in verses three, uh, verses 20 and 21. But in verse seven, he says, it's the responsibility. And I would say the glory of the church to make known the wisdom of God throughout all ages. In Isaiah 66, <clears throat> We have the coming of the Lord in flaming fire. We might think 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The coming of the Lord in flaming fire. Because that's where Paul is quoting from directly. Isaiah 66, 15. Behold, the Lord comes. 
with chariots of fire, and then shall he reward all of his enemies. Verses 19 and following. Following the day of the Lord. Now, following the day of the Lord, it depends upon which view of the future a futurist takes. Is it a renovated earth where people dwell on earth and there's no more sin, there's no more you know, plague, death, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it in heaven alone? Well, either one is wrong in Paul's view, it seems to me, and in that view of Isaiah, because in Isaiah 66, after the day of the Lord, missionaries are sent to all of the nations who had never known the Lord and had never called on his name. To do what? To present them to Yahweh as a sacrifice. Not a physical dead sacrifice, but as a spiritual sacrifice of worshipers. Now, this is after the day of the Lord. And by the way, it's in the new creation. Right. And we're in the we're in the new heaven and new earth, according yes. to <clears throat> yes. right. And so yes. okay. Well, hey, I I really do appreciate this a uh, lot of stuff, and um, I'm gonna have to do a serious damage control episode <laughs> after this because um, I know people's minds are exploding <laughs> uh, from from listening to this, and so, but at the same time, you know, truth doesn't fear a challenge. No, if we're right, we should be willing to allow our position to be challenged. And I guess I, I watched some of your videos on this and a lot of what I saw made sense. There were certain things that I I, I wasn't sure of. I didn't really know where to look to kind of get those answered. And so I thought I am going to have him on the program and I'm going to let you throw what I think are very good, challenging arguments at, at us. And, uh, I think our side ought to be able to handle those. And so, um, well, about- I, I would just simply like to say in closing, first of all, thank you so much for having the courage to have me on to do this kind of thing. Certainly not everyone is willing to do that. <clears throat> Secondly, I constantly hear people when they're talking about the opposing side, well, you just need to be more of a Berean and have an open mind. And yet they don't have an open mind. Uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of the program, a fifth, fifth generation all millennialist in the churches of Christ. I used to hear all of my preaching heroes say, look, in the churches of Christ, all we want is the truth. If you show us we're wrong, we'll change. So just mm-hmm. we, we welcome the challenge. And I, I, my wife was raised as a Methabapticostal. So uh-huh. <laughs> she didn't have a, you know, a set view, but I used to tell her that. Mm-hmm. And when I began to see my views challenged, radically challenged, I would come home after studying and struggling. And and believe you me, Tommy, I've come to where I am kicking and screaming virtually every day. I didn't want to be where I am. But after studying all day long, sometimes literally, I mean quite literally in tears, because I knew what would happen. I'd come home, I'd lay the Bible down in front of my wife, and I'd say, okay, read this and tell me what it means. Well, she didn't have any baggage. Mm -hmm. And she'd tell me what it meant. Bingo. And I'd go, ah, (laughs) (laughs) what's wrong? I said, well, babe, 
I think you're right, but if I preach that, we're going to be fired. And she go, why would they fire you? You always told me that in the churches of Christ, if they're, they they say, if we're wrong, just tell us or show us and we'll change. I said, yeah, but I, li I, I lied. Mm. <laughs> they don't believe that. <laughs> they have to say the same thing. They don't mean yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So my, my point being that I used to hear my preaching peers say, let's all be Bereans. And I, as I mentioned to you all fair, I consider myself nothing but a student of God's word. Uh, it's taken me an awful lot of time, an awful lot of effort, a lot, a lot of study and research to be where I am right now. Is that a guarantee that I'm right? No, it's not. There are an awful lot of really, really good men and women who have spent an awful long time studying their paradigm, okay, and they believe they're right. If any, if anything has taught me more humility and patience, it is to learn that I was wrong. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. The more I learn, the the less dogmatic I am, and the more gracious I am towards uh, other beliefs, and so. And yeah. that gets me in trouble with my Church of Christ brethren. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I get in trouble too. I'm gonna I'm gonna get in trouble for this episode. You know, <laughs> I, I, I guarantee it. But that's good. that's okay. Everybody, damage control episode coming up. <laughs> and and uh, ho well, just be be gentle with me as much as you can. Oh, I, I, no, absolutely. I you have you have definitely been a gentleman and have been a good sport uh, through this. And I I do I appreciate that. And many people. Uh, especially in the world that I'm from originally, the pre-trib dispensation world, they are not willing to take any kind of challenge and they are the worst at just being hostile and just calling me every name in the book while not even having a coherent defense for what they believe. And so, um, you know, I, I got to respect people that are willing to at least be challenged on these things and but i do i i will um I, i'm gonna do a follow-up episode and then um and if and if you would like you you will be invited to come back on and have the last word uh okay. on that and and if you know if we just walk away disagreeing you know we we disagree but uh you know i'm a big boy i can handle that so not everybody <laughs> and I, I think i can do it without being nasty so uh All right. I, I, but again thank you very much and so uh, thank you everyone for watching this program. I hope you're all not mad at me. I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, you're not all upset now because he just rocked your world, but you know, before you get too mad and throw the stones, allow me my damage control episode. Uh, and, uh, I I've got some things I got to look up though, because this, I, I was definitely challenged and I learned some things, but it was definitely informative and I enjoyed it. We need to have more conversations like this. Truth does not fear a challenge. Some, some of us say it, some of us live it. And so thank you all for watching this. We will see you all next time. God bless. <laughs>